Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Well, good afternoon, and I guess... Happy Daylight Savings Day. Um, you know, it doesn't feel like something to be very happy for a loss of sleep, but here we are. Congratulate yourselves for making it and not getting confused from the timing. But we are glad to join in on this series in the book of John, and we're going to continue that. And as I was meditating and processing uh, about this, I couldn't help but see a connection between this and a television event that sparked and captivated the attention of millions of people uh, just this week. I don't know, anybody here see the master class that Oprah performed as she interviewed uh, Meghan and Prince Harry? Nobody? Anybody watch that? No, nobody watched that. Okay, well, I watched it. Um, I was curious enough to give it a a go. For those that may not uh, keep in touch with such things, I can relate. I I didn't either until I started watching The Crown during the pandemic, and then all of a sudden I got sucked into this whole world. Uh, The basic bottom line is that Meghan Markle uh, married uh, Prince Harry a couple years ago. She's a biracial American, black and white, and she married into the British royal family, uh, perhaps the most famous family in the world because of the crown and the kings and queens and all of those things that come through the United Kingdom. And much like the show, you, you get to see kind of this, this pageantry and, and even power uh, that is imbued in such a prolific family that traces its lineage back 1,200 years. I mean, just think about that. America is not even 300 years old, so this family has gotten the country of the United States beat by four times over. But as I watched the, the, both the, the Crown on Netflix and, and, and it kind of gave me some context into watching the interview, it helped me see an interesting contrast that, or, or tension that emerges in what happens to uh, you know, a, a family whose identity as royalty used to mean real power. Like they literally were the governing body of the United Kingdom until they weren't. And then the people said, no, we want a democracy, so there's this parliament and all this stuff. But yet and still, they have this place culturally as these iconic people. Think about this for a second. Like, you almost, you pretty much got, like, fired, but you still keep the pension and the salary and all the other things. It's just really interesting. And, and, and so now the only thing that keeps them going in terms of in Buckingham Palace in this stature that they have is public opinion. It's, it's the, the only point of connection is how, if the people decide one day, you know what, the millions of dollars that it takes to keep this thing going, we don't want to do anymore, that's it. Gigs up. And so as a result of that, the biggest source of influence for this, them and this family, is the press. Because the press shapes public opinion. 
And public opinion keeps them where they ought to be, where they desire to be. It's about the will of the people. And what that often means is that the price to pay for them to stay where they are is self-preservation, even at the expense of the most vulnerable that must be around. And so it's in that context that when the, the press began to spew racist stories about Megan and, and hounding her and, and her husband, and, and they found themselves alone, they were frustrated because they were without support from the family, but in the family felt like, well, we don't want to go and get on the wrong side of the press. Why am I bringing all this up? Because it's hard to lean into a space of being of purposeful if you are controlled by public opinion. If, if what other people think is kind of what you think kind of controls and, and keeps you at a certain place, you won't do certain things. You won't put your neck out and, and, and risk speaking out on certain things because the risk just doesn't outweigh the reward. Well, you might be thinking I'm just up here to try to dis the crown or Buckingham Palace. No. You may have even thought about friends or neighbors or your boss who also like, yeah, they, 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 they care too much about what people think and, and, they, and they're more about self-preservation than they are serving those who are vulnerable. That might be the case. But maybe it's you that struggles with this sense of putting up a finger to the winds of public opinion and then shaping a response, shaping an identity around that. Maybe it's me too. You know, there's a lot of emphasis and, and, some of, and much of it warranted on this idea of self-care. You've heard a lot about self-care and, and, and it's important to, you know, to take care of oneself and to, to recognize the, the need for vacation and rest and, and some aspects of that. But sometimes this idea begins to bleed into self-preservation. Sometimes our walls become so high that we no longer are willing to serve someone else because, you know what, I just got to do me. Like, think about it. Like, there's always a scenario of anybody who's worked for a startup or, or, or a nonprofit or a ministry where, like, for the first three years, the CEO doesn't even pay themselves. Because there's just, like, they're, they're working out of a deficit. Usually for most businesses, they lose money for the first several years if they can even hope to get past those three years and then turn a profit. So you see, there's, there's some tension that I want to draw out here that exists with this idea of my sense of worth. And this idea of work being beneath my worth. Because sometimes I have to serve and work in a way that may be uh, below my station in order to serve other people who just because I have a sense of need. And that has to be balanced with this idea of knowing one's worth. In fact, I would argue that, and we're going to see from the text, that knowing one's worth is actually the basis by which I can do the most extraordinary acts of service that will blow other people's minds. We see this in John chapter 13. The apostle John is unique in all of the gospels in sharing this story of Jesus 
And it's one that gets to the heart of this issue of worth, of service, and of what does it mean to be great, to live out this sense of purpose. But before we get into this incredible story, I, I want to set some context. Because you see, this passage turns a great corner. We've been laboring through this book for a while now. And this is essentially the beginning of the second half. That pretty much this moment turns the corner to the end of the story. And it starts before the Feast of Passover, which was the meal that commemorated Israel's release from Egypt as slaves. This is important, we'll see. It's a Thursday evening, less than 24 hours away from Jesus' death on the cross. What would you be doing if you knew you had less than 24 hours to live? Maybe you'd be thinking about all you could do to enjoy life. What we find Jesus doing is completely radical and, and, and out of this world. He knows his departure is imminent, and so he, he decides to impart these important themes to his disciples before he goes. And, and it can be summed up in this idea. The way up is down. The way to greatness is to be the least and to serve. Let's go there. John chapter 13, verse 1. It reads, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, it's critical to grasp here what I'm indebted to Professor and Pastor Keith Krell, who described this as the essential key to the entire what's called the upper room discourse. They call it that because all of this happens in the upper room. And Jesus, it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, this is characteristic of John, this to the end. What is the end is he referring to? He, he's using this sense of double entendre to bring out two different dynamic points. One, we know the end is relating to the end of Jesus' life because we just discovered that it's about 24 hours away. He loved them to the end. But, but, but John is also speaking to something that's a deeper, significant moment that he loved them even in spite of the fact of all the things that they had done and all the things that they were about to do. What do I mean by that? Well, if you know throughout the Gospels, you see that they are con continuously confused, disobedient, and even in this next 24 hours are about to reject him and betray him. And even still, Jesus loved them to the end. And here is why this is so essential. Because the greatest incentive to serve others is to recognize that Jesus Christ himself has a vast, unconditional love for you. Even when you fall short. You see, Jesus, what he does here is countercultural because for the very people that he knows, he tells them in advance, you're going to go, you're going to be scattered. When, when, when I get arrested, you're going to all go your own way. Peter, you know, Peter you're going to deny me. All these things are going to happen, but I'm still committed to you. And this is the first point. Jesus chooses commitment culture over cancel culture. 
Can, 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 can we go here for a second? Again, one, one of these things, now again, I'm all for accountability. I'm all for someone saying, hey, you know, someone who has shown themselves as uh, unable to live out this, uh, this calling of responsibility of leadership because of something that they have done that is, you know, uh, just abysmal and, 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 and they're no longer above reproach. That's all fine and good. But we have to be careful that we don't go into this space of having these purity tests where someone makes a mistake and all of a sudden everything in a, else that they've done in their life doesn't matter. We ball them up and throw them away. Because what Jesus does is he says, I am choosing to be committed to you. And that commitment doesn't just look like sweeping everything under the rug, but what it does look like is staying with you and staying committed to you even when you fall short of his glory. Who, who, who knows what I'm talking about here? Who needs a little bit of commitment culture? Commitment culture. But let's continue. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Do you see the way he's, he's building the story and he's making sure that we get all of the nooks and crannies of what's happening here? He's like, okay, this had, uh, Judas had already known what he was going to do. He had already fixed in his heart to betray Jesus. That already was happening. And he's here in the upper room. Jesus knew what was going to happen, but he also knew that all things had been given into his hands and that he, he knew where he came from and he knew where he was going. And that knowledge, that perspective of whose he was, who he belonged to, it allowed him to get up and do something that was quite unexpected for everyone else in the room. You see... When you know what your worth is, you don't depend on somebody else telling you that by what they decide to pay you necessarily or what they decide to do for you. When you know your worth, you recognize that regardless of if I'm employed or unemployed, if I'm getting a stimmy and that's what's keeping me going or I'm just getting some help from a friend, my worth is fixed and it's determined and it's in God, period. But also look at this. It also is saying that he knows he's in the midst of the greatest personal and professional crisis that he was facing in his entire life. And he had the peace to try to give a lesson and serve. So what does he do? In verse 4 it tells us. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, there's a few words here that we just we need to understand. So when it says the outer garments, this was essentially like a cloak that people wore all the time outside. And it was the equivalent, when someone's taking off their outer garment, it's, it's the equivalent to rolling up your sleeves. Something's about to happen. I'm, I'm about to start doing something where I need some freedom of movement. So he, he takes off the, the garment, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, pours water in the basin. Now, as he's doing this, it says, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Look at the reaction and the response. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. Now, the fascinating thing here 
is on one sense, why doesn't Peter understand? Now, granted, we recognize that if um, you go over to somebody else's house to eat, or if I, if I go there today and go to Pastor James' house and, you know, we're sitting, you know, chilling, eating, and then he just, you know, puts a towel around and then decides to start, you know, washing my dogs, I'm going to be like, what's going on? This is confusing. What's happening here, right? But there's some different things culturally that we have to understand. Uh, that's not Peter's reaction. The, the concept of washing feet is not what is confusing him like it would confuse us. Why? Because foot washing was needed in every home in Palestine where they lived. Why? Well, if you can imagine a space that doesn't have asphalt or concrete, that doesn't have highways and sidewalks, it's just muddy. Some of y'all, some of us been down south in places where we know it's just dirt road, like just dirt road. Like that, there's the ditch and then there's the road, right? Like, and that's how you just know where you're going or different parts of the world where that's true. So when that's happening, so you got that, there's no like clean sidewalk and streets. And on top of that, people are not uh, wearing socks and like Jordans, <laughs> right? These are bare feet and sandals. And what that means is, oh, I'm sorry, in Palestine can get up to 110 degrees. So it's hot, it's musty, it's funky, and open-toe sandals with wooden bottom shoes, wooden bottoms for the soles, and it's sweaty. And it's in this context that Jesus and others would commonly, when people would come in, would wash people's feet because you don't, just on a practical level, you sitting here about to eat a meal, you don't want to be smelling that kind of corn chip vibe going on, right? Like that's just not what you're looking for. That's not a good environment. It's not a good look. And so this is as a result of that, typically host would, would uh, prepare a basin and some water for their guests to come in and wash their own feet. We see this in Genesis chapter 18. This is long-established tradition when, when Abraham does this for guests that are coming to him. He, it says that he puts the basin and the pitcher aside so that they could wash their own feet. So the idea of washing feet wasn't strange. And in fact, it wasn't even strange to, if someone had the means and they had the servants that they could get a servant to wash somebody else's feet. So that wasn't strange. The concept wasn't that odd. But what would never happen under any circumstances would be that a master of the house, a, a person who was the serving and someone who was a disciple's teacher, that they would stoop so low as to wash their feet. That would never happen. And why? I mean, so can you imagine, just picture the scene, like you're, you're, you're missed, y'all talking, y'all about to have dinner, and then before you know what Jesus just says, excuse me, y'all. And they're like, yo, where's he going? And he uh, just decides to get this towel. And uh, they're like, why has he got a towel on? And then... He gets the basin. They know what the basin's for and water. And then he just gets on his knees and begins to pour. Now, contrary to the scenes that we see depicted by Leonardo da Vinci in The Last Supper, there were no chairs and tables at this point. 
they would sit and recline and lean with their elbow so that he's literally on the floor next to their feet. And one by one, he puts their foot into the basin, washes it, and then dries it right there on himself. The one that they were saying was the son of God, the one that they were saying was their great teacher who they were ready to follow even to life and death is sitting there and they are, their mind is blown because he ain't supposed to be doing this. Jesus, do you know your worth? He's like, oh, I know who I am. And it's important for me to, for y'all to see me do this because this is, is, is critical for you to understand who I am and who you are. You have to get this lesson before I go. Yeah, I know your feet are dirty. Yes, I know it's a f- source of much infection and fungus and, 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 and just hung toenails and all of that nastiness that we associate with it. I know that. And that's why I'm here at the floor doing this for you. And that's where you can see Peter come in and you see his reaction. He says, wait a minute. No, 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 no. You can't do this. And, 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 and to make matters worse, they had just been having a conversation. Now, this is where it's helpful to get the full picture of all the Gospels in order to understand what's going on. Luke tells us this story in Luke chapter 22. You see, they were just having an argument about who was the greatest. The disciples are thinking, okay, we are on the winning team. Our, our, our candidate is about to be selected. He's about to reign and rule in Jerusalem and establish the kingdom that we've expected the Messiah to have established from years past. So now we got some cabinet seats to argue about. Oh, I'm got, I got Secretary of State because, you know, I was the one that, you know, came and, 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 and you know, and I was ready for Jesus. I was the first one that he, he called. Somebody else is like, well, you might have been the first one he called, but you know, that's why he had to call me because he knew you wasn't picking up the slack. So that I was the first one that when he said, who do men say I am? And I told him, and then he says, who do you say I am? And I said, you, Jesus the Christ. And he said, yup, check it. (laughs) And then that's Peter, right? And then Andrew's like, well, you wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for me because I'm the one that told you about him. So he's just getting into this argument about who is the greatest. And Jesus seeing this, and understanding that y'all don't get the idea of what I'm doing. Y'all don't get the, the, the fundamental notion of who I am goes beyond any of this. You're too busy trying to build your brand. And I'm trying to build a kingdom. They were jealous of each other. I, I love the way my man uh, Shia Lin, he's a, a Christian rapper, he put it this way once. The uniqueness of his meekness is too deep to speak. And if you think meekness is weak, then try and being weak for a, meek for a week. If you, think, if you think meekness is weak, like weak sauce, like, like that's just like sorry. Try being meek for a week. <laughs> See how hard that is, or easy that is. Try, try to just forgive somebody when they've offended you and not try to retaliate, right? Not try to clap back. Try to, try to do that for, uh, for seven days and see how hard it is. And, and, and that's where we get to Jesus, because following Jesus means accepting the cross before the crown. 
This picture wasn't just about feet washing. It was ultimately about his crucifixion. This was a picture of his humiliation that he's giving to them and saying, oh, even as messed up and nasty as you think it is for me to wash your feet, it's about to get even more real than that. It's about to get more real than that because in less than 24 hours, they're going to come in here, they're going to arrest me, they're going to spit at me, they're going to mock me, they're going to make me carry my own form of execution up to Calgary, Calvary, and then they're going to nail me to a cross. And then at the same time, while I'm dying, you know, tell me, well, if you're the son of God, then get yourself off the cross. You heal Lazarus, so why don't you get off? Like, that, all that's going to happen. And then you know what I'm going to say in response? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Peter's like, no, you can't wash my feet. I, I don't want that. I, I, not, like that this is, you're, you're too important. You're too special. And Jesus answered him. Look at what he said. He said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. He says, look, this is non-negotiable, this lesson that I'm trying to draw. This is essential. For Peter to reject Jesus' offer to wash his feet is to reject Jesus' entire approach to ministry. This is foundational to Christ-like servant leadership. It's the only way for him to really get what Jesus is about and enjoy this sense of intimacy. And this was blowing their minds because they were ready to fight for a throne but not for a towel. <laughs> See, it's, it's, it's glorious and, 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 you know, and, and, and very prestigious to, to have a throne, but, but who's going to fight to be like, yo, I'm, I'm ready to serve? Who, you know, where, where can I serve? Who, who's the person that I can serve? Even a menial task that's willing to make me maybe look in their eyes weak. <laughs> I love, you know, Peter because he's such, he's so extreme, Right? So when Jesus said, look, you can't have any part of me if you don't <laughs> let me wash your feet. Then he goes to the other extreme. Simon Peter said to him, look in verse 9, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head too. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> y'all know people like this that just go like go from one stream extreme to the next. It's like, look, <laughs> all right, then like do the whole thing, then get me. <laughs> and Jesus said to him, chill, Holmes. <laughs> The one who is bath, bathed does not need to wash. <laughs> now, this is a very important theological point. And remember, throughout this whole thing, John is using parallels and symbolism to, to reflect something deeper. So this is not just about water and feet. So when Jesus says the one who is bathed does not need to wash, what he's saying is, oh, you already been washed from your sin, Peter. I've already cleansed you. You've already made a profession of faith. You know who I am. And as a result of you knowing who I am, you, you don't need your entire body washed or, and, and, and your entire soul purified anymore, even when you mess up. But you know what you do need? You need a touch-up, though, every once in a while. Because even though we are pure in God's eyes, the reality is as we walk through this world, the dust still gets on our feet. 
it's hard to not live in a place where you just, you know, someone gets you in the wrong space. They catch you at the wrong moment. We just saw a scenario just 24 hours ago. Somebody got caught in the wrong moment. And before you know it, you can get somebody push your right buttons or wrong buttons and get you saying stuff that you don't really want to say. They kind of take you there. You know what I'm saying? And what Jesus is saying here is that that doesn't mean that you question your relationship with God, but it does mean that your fellowship with him can be stretched and can be further and further away. We have to always look to wash our feet. So point three, we don't need a brand. We need a bath. Let me, let me, let me explain what I mean. See, because see, the reason why he said this to Peter is because he knew where Peter had already been. He had asked the question earlier and he recognized that Peter understood the theological significance of Jesus. He understood from on a heart level that he had made a commitment to follow him. And, and so as a result of that, he was clean. And he also goes on to specify, except for his feet, but is completely clean. Then he goes, and you are clean, this is Jesus saying, but not every one of you is clean. Now, this is why John had already set up the fact that Judas had already put in his heart to betray Jesus. So when, when, when Jesus says, and you are clean, but not every one of you, he's, he's contrasting the fact that, Peter, you're, you're, you're saved. You, you have a relationship with me. You have saving knowledge of me. So, so you don't need a bath. But this other joker over here, he need a bath. He, he need to be completely redone. And, and, and so the question for us all is, have you been washed? By the blood of the Lamb. Have you been washed by Jesus? Have, have you made this, this profession? Have you aligned your heart? Have you given yourself over to him so that he has cleansed you of all your sin? Past, present, and future. That's what he offers to us. And if that answer to that is yes, then it's like, okay, have you washed your feet recently? If the answer to that is no, then the great opportunity is there's still time for you. Verse 12, he says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Jesus is about to wrap the lesson up and take it home. Do you understand what I have done? Making it very clear that this was an object lesson. He goes on in verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. This was not just about a sense of are you washed and bathed, even though it was partly that. But it was also a greater point that he's made. Y'all sitting over here arguing about who's greater, what you really need to be thinking about is who can serve the most. And what Jesus' point here is that humility comes before honor. Christ was humbled before he was exalted. The cross comes before the crown. As Pastor James mentioned that we've been now in this, this season of... Uh, socially distant services and, you know, and things. It was almost a year ago this week, pretty much, that the world shut down as we knew it. 
And in that time, we had 36 hours from the time that we heard the decree from the state of New York, no mass gatherings until the first Sunday. 36 hours. And in that time, we cobbled together an online service team who just was able to turn us around that way. And so by the first Sunday, three days later, we were up and running and we're online, Facebook, YouTube, all of that. So I just want to give a shout out. Let's just give a shout out for the audio team, the camera team, the graphics team, the worship team, hospitality. I mean, y'all, the amazing thing is they are a picture of this process of, 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 of serving because we don't, you don't see that. You don't see them. It just kind of comes up and you just go, okay, it's time for worship again. Let me just go to the Facebook page or YouTube and that's it. But there's a whole team of people who, who go behind the scenes who serve and never get recognition for that in terms of people going. So we want to recognize that. And we want to honor that because that's a picture of serving. We would not even be able to have this experience were it not for them doing that. And Jesus wraps up the point here in verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. <laughs> when Jesus took off the outer tunic and when he wrapped the towel around himself, he was showing them what to do with our power and privilege. You see, this is, again, this double entendre that, 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 that John is giving us. He was giving them a picture of what humility looked like. There's a connection, a close connection in the scriptures between this aspect of what you wear and, and the sense of honor that you have or being dishonored. So you see Solomon and, and it says, you know, not even the lilies in the field with all their splendor, not even Solomon was clothed like the lilies of the field with all of his splendor. When you think of somebody, even to this day, when we're about to go out and we want to really be dressed to impress, we go all out physically. Conversely, when they sought to humiliate Jesus, they stripped him completely as a form of humiliation. And so this, this outward picture of taking off the tunic to serve is also a deeper picture of what it looks like to actually posture myself in a sense of service and not just self-aggrandizement. It was a lesson that Peter would never forget. How do I know that? Well, we happen to have letters that he wrote to the church some three decades later after this moment. And look at what he says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. The picture stayed in his mind of what it looks like to put on the garment of humility. And he says, God opposes the proud. I know because I was that proud person who said, every, this dude literally said, the rest of these guys may forsake you, but I won't. <laughs> said that in front of them. I know the rest of the disciples was looking at him like, really, dog? Like, you just going to put us on the front street like that? But ultimately, what this is a picture of is a picture of Jesus and his commitment to say, you know what? Service means taking the power and privilege and influence that I have and using it for the greater good of somebody else. And this is the fifth and last point. Power is given to serve others, not ourselves. You know, and a lot of the critiques that we have right now, and there's a negative and pessimistic picture of power. Power by itself is not bad. Some, you know, look, power is, can be a good thing in the right hands. The question is, what do I do with it? 
That's the real issue. And that's why so many people responded to Meghan Markle with a sense of support because they realized that this woman who was you know, on her own and, and experiencing all this vitriol and, and, and the people who had the influence and the power to, to be able to be a buffer and protect weren't doing that and there was a sense of empathy that naturally comes from that. And Jesus is showing us that his way is the opposite way of the world, that the, the goal is not self-preservation, it's, it's self-sacrifice for people who are in need. I'm going to put myself in harm's way for you. And that's why he washes their feet. Jesus says, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. And when the church does this, the world sees and takes notice. This is what we were built for. Serving is not about your worth. It's about your worship. Don't ever think that serving and stooping low and doing some humbling tasks like picking up trash or, or moving tables is some statement about what you're worth. No, 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 no. Your worth is set and secure. You're a child of the king. The one who wore a crown of thorns so that you could be crowned with glory and majesty. That's who we are. Service is not about your worth, but it's about your worship. And, and I know that the, church, the world pays attention because just recently there was a documentary, The Black Church, on, on uh, PBS. Fascinating documentary. And what you saw was that the church at its best was a beacon of, 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 of light in, in, in oppressive times. It was a church that you can't talk about the story of abolition without talking about the church. You can't talk about the story of civil rights without talking about the church. And because that, that people saw that and made that connection at its best. And at its worst, it looks like the complete opposite and hypocrisy of that. And we've seen both pictures. I'm grateful that Pastor James has really led well with this Pray March Act initiative that got started really when we organized a protest after the murder of George Floyd. And it's continued to go. And as we've moved, even in the space of, of social distance, it's been harder to find opportunity to get people plugged in and to serve. And, and that's where it's been exciting to see another thing develop and move. And I had the opportunity to uh, talk to uh, somebody at a church who served in many different capacities uh, up until this point named Lindsay Hall. Many of y'all know Lindsay. She's served in a lot of different ways in city groups and things like that. And Lindsay, she's smart, y'all. Like, she, she real smart. Like she, she got a job with Google out of college in, like, smart tech, STEM stuff that I don't even know how to say. That's, that's what she into. And I remember um, when she was in a growth group that I was leading, and as the pandemic was happening, she had more time, and she saw the needs between the, the twin pandemics of just COVID and then police brutality and, and what was happening. And she decided, yeah, what can I do to serve? How can I serve? So she reached out to Pastor James. And he said, you know, we really need this role of a serve our city coordinator. We need someone to be in a spot where they can actually be involved and, 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 and actually help lead us to give people opportunities to serve to wash people's feet. Well, Lindsay decided to use her gifting and administration and organization and to kind of help build these opportunities. And now we're partnering with organizations, working with churches who are trying to deal with food insecurity so that we can serve those who have needs. 
And, um, and I look forward to the fact that next month, just next month, these opportunities are going to be rolling out. You're going to be hearing about it. But I just thought that was such an important picture because one of our three points of our mission is serve our city. And we take that very seriously. And, and, and so if you've been looking for that challenge and that opportunity, we want to encourage all of you. This is what it looks like. It looks like washing the feet of those who have need because the way up is down. The way to be great is to go low. It's not about our brand. It's about being bound to the one who was branded for us. Who endured the crown of thorns so that we could endure a crown of glory. Are you looking for a throne or a towel? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example that you've given us in your word. We thank you for the fact that um, you have shown us the picture of how to live to what true greatness looks like. And we just pray that you would give us the insight, the picture to recognize the opportunities before us to serve those who have need, that we would use our power to serve others. Whatever influence you've given us, and Lord, I just want to lastly pray for us who, when we fall short of that, we, we just want to be reminded of the fact that you are committed to us. You love us until the end. And that that is the basis by which we can love others. Thank you so much for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.